We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you, and more than likely, what the Babadook would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, I'm covering a true crime case slash dark history case out of the United States, but before diving into that, I've got a little bit of housekeeping I need to go over, and I need to tell you what I need distraction from. If you just want to get right into the episode, I would suggest skipping ahead about three to four minutes, but if you're here for a long time, let's get into housekeeping. In terms of housekeeping, there's a new Even Weirder series episode out now for both tiers on Patreon. If you're not on Patreon and you want to get in on this monthly series, go to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast to see which of the two tiers works best for you and to get some more distractions. Speaking of distractions, my need for a distraction this week is I'm unsure about my career. I feel as though I have said this numerous times on the show, and if not, maybe you've seen me complain about it online because hello, I'm a millennial. Where else am I supposed to complain? I'm just struggling right now to figure out whether what I'm doing now is what I want to do for the rest of my life or if maybe it's time for me to do something completely different. And for those who have been listening, following along, You might remember I just started a new job not too long ago, and as much as the new job has helped me move forward from my last job, which wasn't really working for me anymore, this job also is having some pretty bad days and just not maybe what I expected slash what I think I could handle doing for the rest of my working life, both emotionally and physically. And I'm at a point where I just want to be at a place where I know I'm going to retire. Like, I just want to set my roots in, I want to be somewhere, and that's it. So that's my need for a distraction this week. If you want to share your needs for a distraction, please feel free to shoot me a DM or send me an email. But with that said, let's get into this week's episode. This week's distraction is a topic that was suggested to me many moons ago by listener Alicia Wheeler. Typically, a topic pick would be considered a Patreon perk, but I've been holding on to Alicia's suggestion for a very long time and finally took it off the roster to cover. So thank you, Alicia, for suggesting this week's episode being the Florida School for Boys. The tragedies associated with this school that will be discussed in the episode are not for the light of heart by any means, shape, or form. So please, Don't take my lightheartedness in the moment too lightly. It's about to get real, and it's about to get dark. Due to potential coarse language, mentions of child abuse, and other adult themes that some may find disturbing, listener discretion is advised. Once functioning in Mariana, Florida, on State Road 276, laid over 1,400 acres, 
that would eventually be home to the Florida School for Boys. The school would go on to have many names, starting as the Florida State Reform School, followed by the Florida Industrial School for Boys, and the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, named after one of their former superintendents. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to it as the Florida School for Boys, or just the school. This school, located over an hour to an hour and 30 minutes away from the state's capital of Tallahassee, was known as what's called a reform school. A reform school was basically a jail for children and teens, which these organizations seemingly became more popular in the mid-1800s into the 1900s. Now, it's more or less referred to as juvenile institutions or facilities. Sometimes these schools acted as houses to children who were homeless and had nowhere else to go. It's kind of like a poorhouse jail hybrid with a youth focus in this era. This reform school opened its doors on January 1st of 1900 after being first organized under an 1897 act of legislature. Before long, it would become one of the largest high-risk juvenile reform institutions in the United States. It would comprise of staff residencies, an infirmary, a warehouse, administration buildings, a dining hall, a pool, a gym, a woodworking building, a paint shop, and more. There were numerous cottages also on site, and there was also a specific psychiatric clinic slash building of sorts. I did read some descriptions of the school where eventually claimed they would have mental health-based resources on site, including anger management classes and education. But as many can imagine, that kind of treatment option came way down the line. Like it wasn't offered, I don't think, in 1900. The campus was reportedly divided into two sub-campuses, with one being referred to as Southside or Site Number One, and then the other being known as Northside or Site Number Two. These sub-campuses were segregated from 1900 to 1966, Southside being for Caucasian boys and Northside being for non-Caucasian boys. The ages of the boys that once resided at the school seemingly ranged anywhere from 6 to 21 years old. Their average stay at the school could go anywhere from 9 to 12 months, but if they were orphans, they may have been there longer. In the beginning, the school was allegedly overseen by five commissioners, who basically were to operate the school and send reports to the government. According to an abandoned Florida website, the commissioners were eventually replaced by the governor and cabinet of Florida, acting as the board of commissioners of state institutions. One could assume, perhaps wildly, that because this institution was government-ran, that it probably functioned with high regard and respect towards those that called this place home. However, as the saying goes, assumptions make an ass of you and me. So let's talk about what went on here, shall we? For the next bit, I'm going to try and go down the long list of horrible things in as much chronological order as possible. Rumors of mistreatment, abuse, and neglect seemed to populate in the early days of the school's existence. Unfortunately, some of these rumors weren't rumors, but actual reality. For example, during a 1903 inspection, it was reported that students at school were commonly kept in iron-like cuffs. Which you might be thinking, okay, but Alex, this is a prison for kids and youths. There's going to be handcuffs and those sort of detaining items involved. Which, I hear what you're saying, but... 
I also am a bit concerned that they were reportedly commonly kept. In my mind, that means that they were kept more than a couple minutes or a couple hours in these leg cuffs, which is a concern, especially a concern that maybe in 1903, wasn't as high as it is in 2023. Boys that misbehave from the school's rules reportedly were brutally beaten with a leather strap attached to a wooden handle. You didn't know when it was coming, says Jerry Cooper, who told an NPR article of his time at the school when he was 16. These were not spankings. These were beatings. Brutal beatings. Further tragedy struck in 1914, according to a Tampa Bay Times article, when six boys and two staff members died, trapped in a dormitory after a fire ravished the building. A grand jury learned that the then-superintendent and some of the staff were in town on what has been described as a pleasure bent when the fire started. So basically, they were off-site, and they were probably at a bar and being irresponsible and maybe on some kind of bender. Needless to say, the then-superintendent lost his job, but the building still continued its neglectful streak. Before moving on to more tragedy, I do want to highlight that any child or young adult that died on site was reportedly buried on site. This was not documented well, and trust that we will discuss this further as the episode goes on. I'm assuming it's similar to asylums in this era, where basically if someone died on site and there wasn't any family to pick up the body, the institution was kind of left to bury them because no one else would. In 1918, the Spanish flu hit the school and a total of 11 boys died due to the sickness. However, names of these lost souls have never been made easily public. Turning the clock to 1929, an 11-room concrete block detention building was constructed on the property. This detention building, referred to as the White House, would allegedly house the more defined, violent students, or ones who are not participating in any kind of treatment plan, successfully. This building would later be closed in 1967 after corporal punishment was banned, but between 1929 to then, it was known as the almost prime location for boys to be abused. I mean, the fact that it closed down after corporal punishment was banished is kind of a red flag to me. I don't know about you, but it's a red flag to me. It kind of speaks some volumes. We will circle back to the White House in a bit, so please keep that in mind. By 1934, a 13-year-old boy was reportedly sent to the school for trespassing, only to die at the school a mere 38 days after arriving there. I wasn't able to find out anything more about this case, other than it's very eerie and very tragic for sure. In 1944, four boys at the school, all under the ages of 19, murdered their fellow mate who was only 12 years old. Based on a Pensacola news article with a very dated article headline, the four boys were said to have killed 12-year-old Earl Wilson by strangulation and hitting him on the head. Despite the scandals taking place, a second campus was opened in the town of Okeechobee in 1955. Okeechobee, for those like me who don't know Florida at all, is approximately six hours south of Mariana. Now jumping to 1968, then-Florida Governor Claude Kirk visited the Reform School where he reportedly witnessed overcrowding and poor conditions. He was later quoted saying in response to his brief time visiting the school that 
Somebody should have blown the whistle a long time ago. Other visits and even investigations by officials on separate occasions weren't any better. But speaking of the 1960s, before moving on the timeline and kind of talking more about the investigations, the school reportedly housed upwards of 564 boys. Some of their offenses include things such as school truancy, running away from home, or what has been described as encourageability in relation to things such as cigarette smoking, which the fact that they considered cigarette smoking as something unchangeable kind of is hilarious considering now people quit smoking every day. But alas, it was the 1960s. Years later in 1982, an investigation revealed that boys at the school would be hogtied and kept in isolation for weeks at a time if they were found breaking the rules. There were continued allegations of abuse, including rape, and general mistreatment of the youths at the school as well. Three years after that, in 1985, it was learned that students of the Reform School were tortured by being handcuffed and hung by the bars of their cells, sometimes for more than an hour at a time. This was a practice that the prison guards were approved of doing by their supervisors, who were allegedly aware of this taking place. Even though countless investigations and visits resulted in promises to improve the school and how things were run were obviously made after the fact, nothing really seemed to stick. Big action didn't come until the school failed a state inspection in 2009 which took place as the governor ordered a series of investigations. During these investigations, historic and more prison allegations of abuse, neglect, and violence were seemingly confirmed by officials. After these investigations were done by both the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice, a decision was made to shut down the school permanently. The school, which had served for over 111 years, closed its doors in June of 2011. By December 2011, the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice published their findings, which I'm going to share with you all in a direct quote. The youth confined at the school were subjected to conditions that placed them at serious risk of avoidable harm in violation of the rights protected by the Constitution of the United States. During our investigation, we received credible reports of misconduct by staff members to youth within their custody. The allegations revealed systematic, egregious, and dangerous practices exacerbated by the lack of accountability and controls. These systematic deficiencies exist because state policies and generally accepted juvenile justice procedures were not being followed. We found that staff did not receive minimally adequate training. We also found that proper supervision and accountability measures were limited and did not suffice to prevent undue restraints and punishments. Staff failed to report allegations of abuse to the state, supervisors, and administrators. Staff members often fail to accurately describe use of force incidences and properly record use of mechanical restraints. End quote. Surviving boys who attended the school and left carried their experiences and traumas into adulthood. And for a while, many may have felt like they kind of needed to stay quiet or that they didn't have any space to speak. But that would change. When the 2009 and 2011 investigations of the school came out, more of the former students came forward with their own stories. Two of these students were Jerry Cooper, who I mentioned earlier, 
He reportedly was sent to the school in 1961, and Bryant E. Milton, who was sent to the school in 1959. In a direct quote from a Tampa Bay Tribune article about Jerry and Bryant, quote, Milton and Cooper are among the so-called White House boys, a group of men who claimed they were lashed unmercifully with a leather strap in a cottage known on the campus as the White House in the 1950s and 60s. Cooper said he barely survived a 135 lash beating in the White House, end quote. Although the truth was coming out, there would still be many unsolved and unknowns still looming around what happened to students, often referred to as inmates in the resources I came across that once attended the school. Family members and loved ones who had relatives sent to the school that either passed along after attending or died on campus may have developed more anxieties or concerns regarding what actually happened to their loved ones. Because of the unknowns, many continue to poke and pry around the school's former property and its past. One of those individuals that wanted to know more was a forensic anthropologist named Dr. Erin Kimmerl. From her own Wikipedia page, which, get it Erin, that's dope, Erin is an American forensic anthropologist, artist, and executive director of the Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science at the University of South Florida. In 2012, Erin and a badass team of anthropologists biologists, and archaeologists were given the green light to explore the former school's campus by the state. The stories of the White House boys reportedly captured Erin's interest as she had previously worked with various international groups to identify remains and burials in areas of former warfare. Because of Erin's previous experiences on top of the allegations of students being buried on the property, Erin took her team and explored the Mariana property, aka the OG property, in order to try and give families and loved ones some answers. By December of 2012, the research team indicated that they had located 55 graves on the school grounds. The group had, prior to, discovered documentation that there were nearly 100 deaths at the school. With their discovery, the team then believed that a secondary cemetery or burial ground was likely to exist somewhere. But how did these boys die? Here's where legalities begin to make the situation a bit murky in terms of finding a full answer as to what happened to these boys that were buried on site. If I'm not mistaken, one cannot further explore a body's cause of death without it being exhumed from its burial site. Based on numerous resources, including an NPR write-up, exhuming the bodies can only be done if a family member requests it. Which might sound like an easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy situation, except documentation at the school was shoddy, making locating family and putting in those requests kind of an uphill battle. One relative of a former student named Thomas knew that his uncle attended the school in the 1930s. Due to this knowledge, Thomas's nephew, named Varnado, visited the school in the 1990s to see if he could find his uncle's grave. As mentioned in the NPR article I came across, which will be in today's resources, Varnado claimed a school staff member agreed to take him to show him where his uncle might be buried. This staff member guided him not to where Erin and her team would eventually investigate, but to another location on site. Varnado was quoted in saying, quote, he took me to a second place and said, here's where we think the five kids that died in the fire in 1914 are buried. Your uncle could be there, end quote. Thomas's body would be found in January of 2016, along with the bodies of George Owen Smith, who was reported missing since 1940, and the previously mentioned Earl Wilson, who was murdered in 1944. 
A final report released claimed that in total, 55 burials were located. It further said that 13 of the graves were located in the school cemetery, and the rest of the graves were outside this area in the woods, including under a roadway, bush, and a large mulberry tree. To me, it sounds as if these boys' bodies were just kind of scattered across the property, which is weird because if the school had a cemetery, why were these bodies in particular placed elsewhere unless they were buried before the cemetery was developed? I don't know. It's it's weird to me. Some of the bodies discovered were sent in for DNA matches, with some hits being made. Not all had hits, but some did. By late March of 2019, an additional 27 possible graves were identified during a pollution cleanup on the property. In July of that year, Dr. Eric claimed she would return if further anomalies on site discovered were, in fact, more graves. That is seemingly where things have kind of left off in terms of investigations, which I'm sure were halted due to the 2020 pandemic, among with other things. Hopefully, they will pick up again, but until then, let's wrap up this week's episode. I'd like to think that anything that happens behind closed doors will come to the forefront someday. And as what we have now learned about the Florida School for Boys, the doors of the former Reform School have been opened since its closure. Here's hoping that as time goes on, we explore and open more doors, uncovering and honoring those whose lives were lost or altered due to the trauma that once occurred. I don't believe any charges have been laid regarding the atrocities that took place at the school, as some who were perhaps responsible may be long gone at this point. For those curious cats who are wondering how the state has responded to this unraveling of dark history, let me quick fill you in. In March of 2014, then-Governor Rick Scott signed a bill authorizing up to $7,500 per burial for those families who wanted to reinter the remains of relatives identified in unmarked graves at the school. I was able to collect that this house bill was essentially set to fund two memorials, with one being in Tallahassee and the other being in Mariana, as well as the reburial of remains and potentially provide some kind of restitution to victims that are still alive. Unfortunately, as of April 2019, this bill has not passed and Florida has a new governor now, so who knows where things lie. Some of the survivors of the school aren't necessarily in agreement with the offer from the state, particularly with the idea of having former students still buried on site or buried anywhere nearby the former school. Let me explain this further from a direct quote by a man named Greg Allen used from an NPR article. Quote, The White House boys are adamant that the remains should not be interred at the old Dozier School. They should be far away and they should not be interred at the nearby town of Mariana or even in that county there. Many feel the town was complicit in the mistreatment of the boys who were held at the school. Some officials and business leaders from Mariana, though, were on hand today in Tallahassee to express interest in the future of the 1,400-acre property. One that I talked to said the town was willing to acknowledge its past, to apologize, and to move on, and some of the White House boys told me that they are now ready to do the same thing. 
to move on, end quote. Speaking of moving on, mainly down the timeline, on April 26 of 2017, the state held a formal ceremony with families and survivors to apologize for the abuses of the children at the school. As mentioned, things seemingly have been quiet since about 2019, but if anyone finds or sees a resource with information dated later than that, please send it my way. Let me know your thoughts on today's topic over on the podcast social media accounts or shoot me an email. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming Weird Distractions or any podcast on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or review, please consider leaving a rating or review because that is the best way and the cheapest way, because it's free, to support your favorite podcasts. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an episode is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find Weird Distractions over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and on TikTok. Do you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month? Why not join one of two tiers over on the Weird Distractions Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and bonus series, such as the Even Weirder series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early and ad-free access to regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Jennifer, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you and appreciate your support so much. Without you, Weird Distractions may not be what it is today. Lastly, I want to hear from you. I would love to collect your stories of paranormal encounters, too close to home true crime cases, maybe even some weird MLM experiences, or maybe just in general weird things that you've encountered so that I can continue to release the Listener Distractions series. And you might be tuning in for the first time and you might not know what I'm talking about. This is a series that Christy and I originally started where we would read your personal experiences on air. If you have a story you want to share, please email me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections needed to be made after today's episode, please let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.